This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Orientation for new members of Congress last week was anything but perfunctory. Freshman Democrats found themselves taking sides in a leadership battle. That includes Representative-elect Joe Neguse of Lafayette, the former CU regent and the son of refugees. He's the first African-American from Colorado elected to Congress and Congressman-elect. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Ryan. Great to be here. So on Monday, we learned the longest-serving member of the delegation, uh, Diana DeGette, had withdrawn her bid to become majority whip in the House, citing internal pressure to get behind current leadership That, of course, includes Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Also Monday, 16 House Democrats released a letter saying the chamber needs new leadership. Your fellow freshman, Jason Crow of Aurora, didn't sign that letter, but he says he won't back Pelosi. Will you? Well, so I think it's important for every member to make a decision that they believe is in the best interest of the constituents in their district. Uh, I thought it was important for me to keep an open mind during the first week of orientation uh, so that I could actually visit with the existing leadership and with my fellow freshmen and members-elect, talk to them about their vision for the future uh, of not just our caucus, but of our country. What what did you hear and what have you decided? So ultimately where I landed is that I would support uh, Nancy Pelosi uh, to be the next Speaker of the House for a variety of reasons. I think it's important that we have steady leadership. Uh, I also, I would just say, is I found it to be quite interesting that this question was sort of asked so often when there are no other candidates that I'm aware of that are uh-huh. running against um, Leader Pelosi. But in any event, I also thought what was pretty heartening for me, uh, there were some signals from the leadership office this last week that made it pretty clear that the leadership team was going to ensure that there are diverse voices at the table. So what do I mean by that? Leadership made a commitment to uh, create a diversity office uh, in the next Congress, which was uh, a very important step, and also uh, a commitment to members of the Progressive Caucus, uh, that the Progressive Caucus would be represented on uh, key exclusive committees, uh, which, again, I thought was important. So ultimately decided to that that's where I landed. Help, help us bring this beyond the beltway. Why does this matter to this decision you've made to support Speaker Pelosi? Why does that matter to the people of your district? Uh, well, I mean, I would say uh, it does matter, although ultimately this issue has probably received a lot more attention than perhaps um, I would give it. I think what's mm. far more important for us as a party uh, and as a caucus is to discuss the policy matters that we're going to push on uh, when ultimately the 116th Congress is sworn in. So you are convinced that uh, perhaps members of Congress of color and progressives will have a louder voice in this Congress? I think so. That's certainly my hope. Okay. Besides leadership, another issue that's been widely reported on with this new Congress is climate change. According to Politico, a group of younger representatives wants the Democratic Party to take more aggressive action, perhaps expanding the scope of a committee that already exists on this issue. Uh, Another first-year member, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York, is behind that push. You backed her, tweeting, as a millennial, I firmly believe climate change is the defining issue of our time. Proud to join her and others in pushing for a select congressional committee. Given who is in the White House uh, and that the Senate is in Republican hands, what can you achieve on the issue of climate change? Well, I would say a couple of things. So, you know, first and foremost, given the quote that you just uh, uh, repeated, I do think that this is an existential threat. I see this as the defining issue of our time. And so it's important, in my view, to have a select congressional committee uh, that ultimately uh, has the tools uh, to really get a grasp on the public policy solutions that uh, I think we should ultimately be adopting that need to be very, very significant in scope uh, to ultimately uh, move the needle in a tangible way. Now, as you said, 
Uh, we do have a Republican president and a Republican Senate. I am not naive enough to think that uh, this president will sign the kind of far-reaching, comprehensive legislation that I believe is warranted to ultimately deal with the planetary crisis that uh, that we are grappling with. But I do think there's an emergence, emerging bipartisan consensus on some potential solutions. You've heard a number of Republicans and Democrats talk about pricing carbon. There are a variety of different ways to do that, whether you are doing a carbon tax that then includes a dividend that is paid back to the American taxpayer or uh, using those dividends to reinvest in renewable energy. But I actually think you see a lot of thought leaders on the left and the right uh, talking about the need to think thoughtfully uh, about some policy prescriptions uh, on this issue. So I think it'll be important to find consensus where we can. All that being said, uh, we will have another election in two years, right, uh, where we will have an opportunity uh, to potentially flip the Senate as well as retake the presidency. And so much of the work we will do in this next two years is also to set a governing agenda uh, that hopefully uh, the next administration, uh, which I hope uh, will be in Democratic hands, uh, can ultimately enact and implement. So in a way, this is about saying this would be our agenda if we had full control of government. Um, if, if not achieving actual results in the next two years. I, I think that's right. But I would say that we should also legislate where we can. Right. I don't think that those two goals are mutually exclusive. I think we can do both. I just want to note that you received significant contributions this election cycle from leading attorneys at a Denver firm called Brownstein Hyatt. Several outlets have reported that it does business with the Saudi government, the contract of about $125,000 a month. Um, Given the killing of journalist Jamal Khashoggi, do you have any reservations about that firm supporting you? Uh, Well, I would say I I would disagree with the premise of the question around significant contributions. I think it's uh, the lawyers that you referenced donated one to two percent of the total amount that we've raised. The vast majority of campaign donations, twenty thousand dollars total from these attorneys. That's right. Out of about one point four three million dollars raised. Most of the money that we raised was from small donors from across our state. Uh, uh, But yes, there were some prominent attorneys like Stan Garnett, who's a former Boulder district attorney, uh, Boulder community leader who works at the firm that you referenced, uh, who supported our campaign. At the end of the day, I guess I'm far more concerned concerned about uh, taking action at the policy level in the Congress uh, to ultimately hold Saudi Arabia accountable, which is something that I'm certainly very supportive of. Uh, Representative Ro Khanna out of California recently introduced a resolution uh, to end the United States' support uh, for the war in Yemen, uh, which you know Saudi Arabia has been engaged in. Unfortunately, the House of Republicans blocked that resolution five days ago. Uh, but fortunately, in the 116th Congress, we will have a Democratic majority that can actually act on that issue, among many others. So that that's where my focus is. Okay. Any re- reservations at all about taking the Brownstein-Hyatt well, money? Well, again, as I said, I think... Uh, my focus is ultimately, as a policy matter, holding folks accountable. That's what I'm going to be focused on. Okay. You're not answering that particular question. I, well, clear. no. I guess what I'm saying to you is that fundamentally, I think the way in which we should judge candidates and, and public officials is how they choose to legislate and how they choose to act uh, out in policy terms. And and from my vantage point, I think it's pretty clear I am a very passionate advocate for holding uh, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia accountable for, you know, this uh, incredibly ghastly action that they've, an atrocity that they committed. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are speaking with Congressman-elect Joe Neguse from Colorado's 2nd Congressional District. He's a Democrat, a new face 
in Congress. There are more than 60 new members of Congress. We mentioned Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, a self-described socialist who at 29 is the youngest woman ever elected. The group also includes a former NFL player, a one-time rapper. There's Donna Shalala of Florida, who was the Health and Human Services Secretary for Bill Clinton. Uh, Let's talk about you in more depth. You are 34. Do I have that right? Yes. The son of refugees from Eritrea in East Africa. Uh, We mentioned you're a former CU regent. You've been critical in encouraging young people to vote through an organization you co-founded called New Era Colorado. What made you want to serve in Congress, whose approval ratings, I'll note, are around 20 (laughs) percent, Jenna Goose? It's pretty low. Um, You know, my wife and I last year, uh, last summer, thought long and hard about whether or not to ultimately take the plunge and, and to throw my hat in the ring. And ultimately... We landed on doing it uh, because we both were so deeply concerned about the direction that this country is taking uh, with this current administration. And in particular for for me, being the son of immigrants uh, and uh, witnessing, uh, seeing uh, this administration's uh, dehumanizing rhetoric around immigrants and refugees, uh, the draconian policies that they've pursued with respect to immigration, uh, you know, the actions on our southern border separating children from their parents, uh, ultimately uh, led me to conclude that that my voice would perhaps be a unique one uh, that could add to the debate in a substantive way and that, that I might have a role to play uh, to serve this district and this state. And so ultimately decided to throw my hat in the ring. Put differently, would you say that you are now in Congress because of Donald Trump? I think that's right. I, I certainly uh, have always been uh, passionate about public service, as you mentioned, serving as a regent, serving in Governor Hickenlooper's cabinet for several years as the head of our state's consumer protection agency. But I don't know that I would have uh, run for Congress uh, were it not for, you know, the really kind of unique situation we found ourselves in this last few years with a president that obviously I uh, vehemently disagreed with on quite a lot. So you will hold the seat that the state's new governor, Jared Polis, had. Uh, again, this is the second congressional district. And I spoke with Polis last week. And he said, listen, Colorado functions better than Washington, D.C., largely because the partisanship in D.C. is so entrenched. Uh, you've already been exposed to the infighting among Democrats. How do you try to navigate all of the politics and actually get things done for constituents? So I think the governor elected is right that we do things differently here in Colorado. There is a certain ethos here in our state. Uh, you've had Governor Hickenlooper on your program many times, and he always made clear to the cabinet uh, you know, when I was serving uh, under him in, in state government that there was no margin in making enemies, that it was important to work across party lines to try to get things done for the people of Colorado. And that's certainly been my approach here in the state uh, when serving on the Board of Regents. I was the Democratic representative for the 2nd Congressional District, but the entire time I was there, I served on a Republican board uh, where the Republicans had a majority, which meant if I wanted to get anything done, I needed to convince and and control and persuade uh, my colleagues uh, to ultimately uh, help pursue some of the policies that I wanted to enact. And so I'd like to export some of that, you know, pragmatism, uh, that, that approach to Washington, D.C. I think we'd be well better served if that were the case. I'm not naive enough to think that that's going to happen overnight. Mm. Uh, But I would say in my conversations with the freshman class over the course of the last week and a half, it's pretty clear to me that America in the aggregate has sent a new generation of particularly young folks who are just very eager to get to work and are willing to listen to people who 
might see the world a little differently than they do. Uh, you see this, of course, in my friend and colleague, Jason Crow, who's also uh, will be joining me in Congress. From the 6th Congressional District Aurora. That's correct. And so I, I'm excited. I, I am an eternal optimist, as my wife always tells me. So, uh, you know, there, there's a lot to be hopeful about, and I'm hopeful that we can actually get some things done. Very briefly, to wrap up, you're in a, a safe Democratic district at this point. How long do you imagine serving? That's a great question. Uh, that doesn't mean you, you couldn't be primaried, but I'm just saying, you know, it's likely that a Democrat will be reelected in this district. Well, so uh, I would say this. It's an incredible honor to represent this district. I am grateful to the people of the 2nd District who have put their confidence in me to represent them and, of course, who, you know, have made history in the process for our state and our country. Uh, obviously, there's there are sacrifices involved. My wife and I just welcomed our first child into the world. Uh, we have a baby daughter. Her name is Natalie. She's three months old. And so, my we, goodness, that, this is a time of no yeah. sleep for you <laughs> for many reasons. It's, it was a big year. Um, so the travel back and forth is obviously, uh, you know, is, is taxing on on the family. And so I, I can't imagine that. Uh, you know, I, I'd like to serve for a limited period of time in which I can actually look back and say that I. I got something done for the people of my district and delivered for the constituents in the second district, and then ultimately, um, you know, go on and serve in a different capacity. And I think that's that's what our democracy is all about. So. You don't envision a, a career no. congressional I do stand. not. Okay. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Ron. Democrat Joe Naguz uh, was just elected to Congress for the second district in Colorado. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Now, an effective climate change you may not have considered. Warmer winters can mean more crime. That's the conclusion of researchers at CU Boulder. They reviewed data from more than 16,000 cities. Ryan Harp is lead author of this recently published study. Ryan, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. So how can a 5 or 10 degree temperature difference during the winter translate into more crime and crime of all sorts? Is that right? So we found this in both property and violent crime. And what we believe is going on is that a milder winter, generally more pleasant weather, is going to lead to more people being out and about, so leaving their homes, going to coffee shops, going out to eat, going to parks. And you're essentially just increasing the chances that a perpetrator and a victim will cross paths without a guardian present. And this is known as the routine activities theory. Without a guardian present? What do you mean by that? A guardian is anyone who is in a position to stop the crime. So this could be a police officer. It could be just an employee at a store. Um, but anyone who is able to prevent a crime from occurring. And that is, uh, you're seeing warmer temperatures in winter. There are more interactions among people, potential criminals and victims of crime, but not necessarily extra staffing, extra guards at a Walmart or extra police on the streets. Exactly. We would expect those levels to stay pretty similar. Because no one's thinking, we're having a warmer winter. Let's get more guards in place. So the, the correlation between warmer winters and crime was not as strong in Colorado as it was, for example, in the Northeast and the Midwest. Could you explain why that would be? Why different cities would see something different when it comes to temperatures and crime. Places like the Northeast and the Midwest naturally have harsher winters. And so a, a 10 degree or 20 degree warmer month 
uh, is going to have a much stronger effect on those locations. They're just more sensitive to a prolonged heat wave. So, for instance, a place in uh, New York, if you are going from 20 to 40 degrees in the winter compared to, say, 40 to 60 degrees down in Texas, that temperature change is going to affect people's behaviors much more in these places that are experiencing stronger, harsher winters. Versus L.A., where everyone's already out in the winter, uh, so the, the difference is more stark there. What is the correlation? Like, how strong in these places uh, did you find the connection between warmer winter temperatures and crimes of all kind? Places like the Northeast and the Midwest, we found a correlation of about 0.8. So this is going from negative 1 all the way to positive 1. The 0.8 is about uh, as high as, or getting very close to as high as you could possibly see, and a very strong correlation uh, for a data set that is you know, something pretty messy like like crime data uh, is is prone to be. Um, but this is a high enough correlation where we are able to explain over 50% of uh, violence and property crime in the Northeast and the Midwest just by temperature alone after we account for some longer-term trends. Huh. Okay, the obvious question is, with climate change making winters warmer, can we just assume that crime will necessarily get worse year after year? I don't think we can go ahead and assume that. It certainly looks like a pretty obvious connection based on our our study, but people are adaptable. And so um, people are physically and in their communities going to adjust to warmer temperatures. So we can't necessarily directly say that Uh, in a warmer climate, that we will see more crime, although it's something that we are going to be looking to investigate in the coming months. Yeah, I guess the point is, uh, when it gets colder, I put on a jacket. When it gets warmer, I take off the jacket. There could be some equivalent behavior that adapts to the possibility of increased crime in a warmer winter. So we have to watch what, what human behavior will do, what communities will do. Uh, what do you hope to do with this data? Is it something that perhaps law enforcement could benefit from, almost like a a warm weather and crime forecast? That is something that we are looking into right now, actually. The next step here is to investigate if it is possible, given our the results of our study here, to make some sort of a, say, one to nine months into the future forecast of crime um, based on what we would expect the temperature to be in different areas. And of course, this would be a forecast based on some of those other things that have been baked in, as you referenced before. Uh, So things like income inequality or changes in uh, police force. That is the next step of what we are looking to do here. All right. Uh, Thanks for exploring this with us. It's fascinating stuff. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Researcher Ryan Harp of CU Boulder on the connection between warmer winters and increased crime. His study took into account some 16,000 cities nationwide. The Rocky Flats National Wildlife Refuge opened to the public two months ago. That came after years of lawsuits and pushback from surrounding communities, which claim the refuge is not safe. The site was used to make plutonium triggers for nuclear weapons. Before the refuge opened, it took more than a decade to clean up the Rocky Flats Superfund site and for the federal government to give it the all-clear. 
We wanted to check in, see how things are going two months in. Rocky Flats Refuge Manager David Lucas spoke with CPR's Andrea Dukakis. David, welcome to the show. Hello. There was a lot of anticipation leading up to the opening in mid-September. Did it live up to the hype? I think it did. Um, we had a couple hundred people, almost 400 people that came and visited on the Saturday and Sunday we opened, and it's been pretty steady since. The Rocky Flats National Wildlife Refuge is pretty rustic. These are long trails and steep, and, you know, it's not for everyone. So having a couple hundred folks that wanted to get out and kind of take that adventure and go back in time and see what Colorado looked like in this front range of Colorado, you know, unchanged for decades. And with winter coming on, what do you expect folks to do? Fewer people come out in the winter, um, but we still see a, a good number of people. This first big snowfall, there was a lot of people who were coming in and really enjoying, uh, you know, the, the Crystal Mountains and the background and the snow and cross-country skiing. What are you hearing from visitors? Yeah, we've gotten a lot of really good positive feedback. Uh, people have been sending us emails and we bump into people when we're out there. Um, kind of the most interesting thing that I've found is that people have complimented the rustic look. Um, I assume they expected, you know, hard concrete trails and lots of manicured lawns, which that is not. Um, it is, you know, dirt trails, and they seem to have really enjoyed that characteristic. Besides the dirt trails, what do you mean by rustic? I'd say we consider it rustic because this area is really what the Front Range looked like hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years ago. So when you hike out there and you start walking across the prairie, and it's a very unique landscape. There are these deep riparian corridors. These these streams have cut over the eons, and you're just kind of walking back in time. And then if you take the hike to the Lindsay Ranch, you go down the hill, and suddenly you're in an old homestead. And there's barns that were built at the turn of the century. And you really can walk back in time, and you don't hear traffic, and you don't see houses. And pretty remarkable this close to a major metropolitan area. Have any visitors brought up the health concerns that have been so public? Not to us. I think the the history past, present, and future for the Rocky Flats National Wildlife Refuge will always be a part of the story. Um, so, yeah, we have to spend some time and talk about what happened there, starting all the way back, you know, during the Native American times, through the homestead time, through the Cold War time. And then suddenly there was a massive cleanup time, and now it's a National Wildlife Refuge. So I think the story is important, and I think it is something that we got to figure out the best way to kind of continue to tell. Do you have any way of telling the story at the refuge? There is a little history available when you when you hike in on the kiosk. There's some signs. Um, but we do have plans for additional interpretation and additional, you know, visitor amenities um, to, to really orient and welcome people. And, uh, and that story will be a major part of that. So when you opened in September, uh, 10 miles of trails were opened. We should note that there are still areas in the refuge that are closed. Why is that? That's a great question. Um, National wildlife refuges are unique. They are different than national parks and local parks. Um, national wildlife refuges are here for fish and wildlife and their habitat. Along with that, one of our major goals is to connect people with nature. So places like these in the metro area are an amazing resource where people can access the National Wildlife Refuge system, and they have the ability to come in and see wildlife. So our mission is to conserve fish and wildlife. So there are several areas on the refuge that will remain closed to the public um, for various fish and wildlife species. One that's really neat is what we call the Antelope Springs Sensitive Wildlife Area. 
And it's just a continual stream that flows down from the, the mountains. And it provides amazing habitat for secretive marsh birds. Mm-hmm. They come in and nest, um, snipe. So many people think that snipe are just a tail that they were told to go out and hunt with a bag. And snipe, snipe? exist can and they de- nest. Can you define snipe? Snipe is a small bird with a very long beak. Um, they fly in the kind of a zigzag motion above the marsh. Very cool bird. And the males all night long will make this kind of eerie call for the females. The refuge also surrounds a piece of land that's not open to the public. Why is that closed off? The center of the refuge is actually where the former Rocky Flats plant was, and that will be managed by the Department of Energy. Um, So that is not part of the refuge. So is there still remediation going on there? There is. They are doing kind of ongoing monitoring would be the best way to, to characterize that. Besides wildlife, what kind of flora and fauna do you see? Yeah, the Rocky Flats is... It's just an amazing landscape. There's over 630 species of plants that have been identified out there. And many of these plant types are globally rare. And there's one that actually is thought to only exist on the Rocky Flats. So pretty remarkable that um, you can visit this location and see things that you would not see anywhere else on the planet. Have there been any protests there because of the Cold War concerns? There were a couple of people on the opening day, but we have not seen them since. In terms of the visitors, what what kinds of people are you seeing? Yeah, it's it's been an amazing, diverse crowd. Um, we've seen everything from individuals out hiking, bird watchers. We've seen some mountain bikers. Um, we've seen equestrian, a lot of folks on horses. Um, they're all coming out to see, you know, the fish, the wildlife, and the plants. Um, one of the more interesting uh, groups that I saw was an individual that brought out his grandkids, and their family had been on this land for three generations. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to show it off to them. It's the first time that they'd had the opportunity. So kind of sharing where they grew up and where their grandparents grew up and coming out and seeing it. Any other plans for the future of the refuge and, um, you know, growing it, changing it? Well, we heard loud and clear that people enjoy the rustic nature. So we're going to listen to that. But there are definitely additional trail connections planned. Um, The local governments that surround the refuge are working really hard to create some of those trail connections. And we're also working again on those visitor amenities. You know, there needs to be some sort of a facility that really helps people understand the history, past, present, and future. David, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. CPR's Andrea Dukakis speaking with David Lucas, manager of the Rocky Flats National Wildlife Refuge. It opened to the public two months ago. Late last week, opponents sent a letter to the Department of Energy and U.S. Fish and Wildlife calling again for the refuge to be closed. There's an ongoing lawsuit that Lucas could not comment on. Attorney Randall Weiner represents the environmental groups that think the refuge should be off limits. Most people don't realize that although $7 billion was spent on a Rocky Flats cleanup, None of the money was used on land where the refuge is located, so it's misleading for the agency to say that the refuge was ever cleaned up. Weiner says they expect the federal judge's decision in the coming months. After a break, turkey talk with a top chef. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. They said, go, go see Dr. Dahl. I'm Carla Walker from Colorado Public Radio Classical, and that's conductor and lecturer Scott O'Neill, my co-host in the CPR Performance Studio, for a new podcast exploring the life and work of one of the great composers, Sergei Rachmaninoff. 
Rachmaninoff may be the best example, maybe the only example, of a composer who overcame severe writer's block with the help of hypnosis. He'd walk down the street to Nikolai Dahl's house, lie back in a deep, comfortable armchair, and Dahl would speak to him in his soft, hypnotic voice. You will begin to write your concerto. You will work with great facility. The concerto will be of an excellent quality. Hypnosis worked. Rachmaninoff was able to write his second piano concerto, the middle movement of which is absolutely stunning. It starts in this still, dark C minor. And very quickly, it turns to a warm, comforting E major. For CPR's great composers wherever you get your podcasts, and thanks to CPR's supporting members who make digital content like this possible. Learn more at CPR.org. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and this next segment takes its cue from TV's Top Chef. There's something inside of us that makes us want to cook. The heat is on. By now, a lot of home cooks are nervous about Thanksgiving. We've found just the right person to help. Denver chef Carrie Baird was in the top four in last season's Top Chef, and she pretty much proved she's up to any challenge. In one episode, she baked upside-down cakes at a mountain campsite. Carrie's either going to be on top today, or she's going to be going home because she couldn't bake cakes in a hole in the woods. Turns out she could. The judges loved her cakes. After that, Thanksgiving's a cinch, right? Carrie Baird, chef at Denver's Bardo Restaurant, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. I want to start with the biggest mistake home cooks make at Thanksgiving. What should we avoid? Um, you know, I think the biggest mistake is overdoing it, putting too much on on your plate. Um, you know, like keep it simple, keep it fun, keep it light, you know, and do things that you know how to do. Okay, well, that's good advice. And yet, doesn't that keep you in a box? In other words, you're never going to grow that way. <laughs> well, not necessarily. I mean, I don't think you should try a 100% new technique on day of. Uh-huh. You could practice leading up to it or take a classic and put a small twist on it and evolve in that way year after year. But, you know, don't don't take on too much so it's not a nice day. You're a celebrity chef, and maybe some of our listeners are saying, well, of course she can do all of this. Uh, let's humanize you a bit. What's your worst Thanksgiving mistake? Oh, as a young, a young, maybe 21-year-old or something, my uh, housemate and I made Thanksgiving for maybe six to eight of us, and I think we put Velveeta in every dish. <laughs> Really? From the mashed, we made like cheesy Velveeta mashed potatoes and mac and cheese and the green beans with Velveeta. And we looked at the table <laughs> and every single plate had Velveeta on it. <laughs> sort of a nuclear yellow. Oh, I mean, it was yummy, but it got a little rich. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm not sure it's a mistake necessarily. Yeah. yeah I. But it was a little, a little much. I don't know what we were thinking, you know. Do you ever use Velveeta today, or is that just off limits? Oh, heck no. I love Velveeta. I love American cheese. I'm a sucker for the classics. Like, you know, I love the nostalgia of American cheese and Velveeta. Like, oh, that stuff's great. Will there be any on your Thanksgiving table? Heck yeah. <laughs> the Velveeta? Yeah. What are you going to put it in? Um, You know, I like a pretty classic green bean casserole. You know, but you can like, I like to, you know, kind of 
dress it up a little these days, you know, maybe deconstruct it and, you know, give people options for their toppings. But, you know, and you don't have to use just Velveeta. You could make a cheese sauce that kind of mimics that Velveeta if you're not into the, you know, the processed cheese product. The processed cheese. <laughs> <laughs> we asked our audience for their Thanksgiving questions. Let's start with uh, one at the beginning of the meal. Our listener writes, what appetizer should I bring that's easy to make and will impress my boyfriend's parents? Ooh, what do I, um, I'm, I love deviled eggs. It's a great finger food, something you could make right when you, you know, you make it today and serve it tomorrow, no problem whatsoever. So deviled eggs is great. And if you get creative with a garnish, something tall and crunchy and really work on texture there, deviled eggs are really cool. What do you mean tall? You know, like a garnish, like put a little, a little cut piece of bacon or something, you know, kind of like a sail in the boat. <laughs> oh, in the egg? Yeah, you know, garnish it. Like, maybe put some fried onions on top or, I don't know, the world is your oyster, but, you know, really just try to dress those eggs up. They, they don't need to just be plain with paprika. Deviled eggs are so popular now. It's amazing how often I see them on menus. It's true. It's a thing, for sure. Yeah, it's like people kind of going back to an analog age. <laughs> yearning I like for it. a simpler food. Yeah, you know, like the classics with a new twist on it. I think that's pretty neat. Okay, so deviled eggs with a bacon sale. I love that. <laughs> I'm not sure if the parents will be impressed. It's pretty, I mean, like, <laughs> you could even color the egg. I mean, there's so many things to do. What's the key to a good deviled egg, though, like in terms of the yolk? The yolk? Well, the first thing is a good egg. You know, spare no expense. Buy the, and that goes for everything, every time you cook anything, is buy the best you can afford. Um, and it goes for deviled eggs, too. Buy a nice egg, boil it properly, peel it so it's smooth, and then... You know, and then that's when you can incorporate the fun things into your yolk farce, if you will. Your yolk farce. Oh, farce. farce. Yes. Okay. The cooking <laughs> meaning of yeah, that the, word. The filling. How do you celebrate Thanksgiving, Carrie, these days? Well, you know, I'm my whole family's in Montana. So uh, the past two years, I've gone to my boyfriend's house. Uh, his family and a grandmother down in Larkspur. So we go there and have a lovely, large family. It's really nice. Is the restaurant open on Thanksgiving? No, we take the day off. That's something that you want to make sure to have for your employees? Um, I like it. I, you know, a lot of us are transplants from out of state, myself included. And so uh, we, my line cooks and, you know, some of the other staff of Bardo, we spend it together. Um, a couple purveyors donate turkeys. We have, you know, we just have a nice meal and just have an off day, but spend it together and kind of team building. And it's very fun. The kind of orphan Thanksgiving. Exactly. That's the word we use, too. What, what do people make? <laughs> Oh, you know, uh, we always there's always turkey, and then there's always fun things. Lots of bread, uh, lots of breads always end up, and uh, like butters and dips and things like this, and lots of finger food. Nobody has a table big enough for twelve people to sit. Uh, I'm interested in, in the butter. Is it something that you jazz up and yeah. add flavor to? Like a nice compound butter, of course. What it, might you put in it? Oh, you. Right off the bat, you know, buy again, buy really nice butter, grass fed, uh -huh. <laughs> and then you know, chop herbs and crunchy salt and maybe a little vinegar, things like this, and then whip them up and put it back together. Awesome. I frankly could have an entire meal of just the butter and bread. Absolutely. Okay, it's about all I can do in the kitchen for that matter. <laughs> so, uh, you mentioned that deconstructed green bean casserole. Mm. Uh, I think of that old fifties version, canned green beans. Cream of mushroom soup, yeah. some fried onions on top. Do you, do you use the cream of mushroom soup in yours? You know, I don't. I've been okay. making my own. 
It's just, you know, if you make your own, you can control things like the salt and you know exactly what's in it. And there's so many wonderful mushrooms out there these days that just a can of cream of mushroom, you could do a little bit better than that. <laughs> you can do better than that, <laughs> Carrie Baird you says. You know, let, let's, you know, push push ourselves a little. This is interesting. The woman credited with inventing the traditional casserole, Dorcas Riley, died last month. I heard that. She was 92. Thought we'd take a moment to remember her. Yes. Let's indeed go back to the program, Top Chef, for a moment, Carrie. You built your reputation on that show with something you call fancy toast. (laughs) Um, You made several different versions. Here you are describing one for the judges. I steep lavender in my olive oil, my honey, and it has a little goat cheese fig and a candied pecan. Walks a nice, fine line between sweet and savory. Thank you so much. Thank you. Oh, honey and goat cheese and fig. Okay, my mouth is watering. Fancy toast indeed. Uh, So another listener, knowing you come on the program today, says, what's the best kind of fancy toast to make using Thanksgiving leftovers? Mm, What a great question. Um, You know, any fancy toast is all about layering and texture. (laughs) You know, so start, you know, uh, the fancy toast that I do at the restaurant and that I did on the show usually had a bit of a crunchier bread to kind of curb that soggy, you know, the terrible word of soggy. Um, But it's Thanksgiving. So what about the sweet roll? You know, the Hawaiian dinner rolls? You can make a fancy toast with those and like layer your mashed potatoes and gravy and a little cranberry and turkey and just have an open face fancy. It'd be so good. I mean, it's funny. Fancy toast really is a, a term for something that I still do which is to turn everything on Thanksgiving into a sandwich. Absolutely, top to with, bottom. <laughs> with dinner rolls. Yes. <laughs> so you would buy those those Hawaiian sweet rolls, or would you make those yourself? I mean, I buy them. They're okay. the King's Hawaiian. They're very good. <laughs> it's so refreshing to hear you say that. I mean, I think that people think that, you know, as a chef, I just must eat the most glamorous food all day long. <laughs> but, you know, I, I spend a lot of energy on the restaurant. When I'm home, I, I kind of eat pretty simple. And if you're just joining us, there was an earlier conversation about Velveeta, people. So, <laughs> uh, It occurs to me that timing is critical to being a good cook. I guess on the front end, knowing when to start prepping. And then on the back end, making sure the food you serve is hot. And that's all about timing. Uh, so we have a question about turkey prep in particular. When do you start? Well, geez, if you if you cook your your bird whole, you know you should brine it at least twenty four hours before, and then just follow the instructions. It's like twenty minutes a pound or something. Um, you could that's super easy to find online. But you know, and that's at three hundred fifty degrees. So chances are you're going to need two and a half up to five hours if you have a twenty five pound bird. Yeah. Um, but these days, knowing, you know, what I know, I always, uh, I always butcher my bird before I cook it because the, the white meat cooks different than the dark meat and things like this. So I separate the bird raw and I cook it at different times and temperatures. How involved a process is that? Well, you know, I'm, I'm an okay butcher, so Uh maybe five, 10 minutes. (laughs) Oh, wow. Yeah. And I, in, you know, there's information out there about all this. Like, I didn't invent any of this. But you can uh, – a, a technique we call sous vide, uh, cooking in a water bath slow and low. You put the white meat in one and the dark meat in another and cook at different temperatures and different times for the best possible poultry you could think of. My goodness. And then you talked about brining. Uh, let's not let that just pass uh, and, and focus a bit on how you go about brining. Sure. Um, well, you can just kind of, you know, shoot from the hip on brining, but 3% uh, saline solution or salt to water is a good jumping off point. But a nice, not quite salty as the ocean, but, uh, you know, 
brine water, but then, you know, don't stop there. A little sugar, aromatics, bay, garlic, you know, black peppercorns, all these things are wonderful. A little vinegar, if you will. And are you placing that under the skin? Um, I put the, the whole bird in a large cambro is what it's called, but a large bucket. A bucket. And get the whole, get it all down in there for 24 hours. A turkey bucket. Everyone is turkey bucket. Okay. On the subject of timing, if you get a late start, a listener asks if you can defrost a turkey in the microwave. Oh, Fa- gosh. Fascinating. Um, <laughs> sounds like something I do. I'm, it would work, I suppose. <laughs> might not be the most delicious bird you've ever made, but if you're in a bind, absolutely. <laughs> okay. There's no risk of things exploding that way. I can't say I've ever done it, so you know, be prepared. <laughs> right, okay, we're going to say proceed with caution. Yeah, I mean, be ready to clean it up, but, <laughs> I mean, ha- let us know how it goes. <laughs> okay, uh, final listener question here. Let's just say you hate Thanksgiving food. We've sort of taken turkey as a given. Uh, what would be a good alternative meal to make? Italian? Mexican? Oh man, I don't whatever floats your boat. I you know, I cook Italian food almost exclusively, but when I eat out on my days off, I I seek, you know, Latin food and Asian food, so maybe any of those. I I don't know, but Chinese food I kind of feels like is a bit more Christmas, you know, the Christmas story and stuff. So maybe go maybe go Latin, maybe go Italian. Maybe go Latin. Okay. Yeah. Uh recommendation for a dish? Oh, for that. A, a main if I you're mean, going to go Latin? Go Latin? Yeah, enchiladas. <laughs> Something you could build and bake and then be done. I love that kind of stuff, you know, the the slow and low, especially if you're hosting. It's so great. I mean, I guess that gets back to the question of serving things hot. Mm-hmm. So this is something you obviously have to pay attention to as a chef at Bardot. Uh, when you have so many elements, so many things that have to land on time, how do you make sure that it all arrives, if not piping hot? Yeah, well, you know... You have to, you know, not everything can be piping hot. So okay. things that have so to first be hot. surrender that expectation. Exactly. Like, okay. and unless you have a kitchen with two ovens, you know, then some things are just going to have to be. You could keep the thermostat in your house nice and warm. Have lots of friends over. <laughs> you know, <laughs> body and then heat exactly lots of body heat. Keep everybody close. But you know, it, there's a rule in the kitchen: hot food, hot plate. You know, warm your plates up. Put the plates on the table warm. Put your silverware down warm. It can only help. Okay, that's good advice. Uh, When we're talking about alternatives, there is a question about seafood, I guess. Mm. Uh, So a seafood alternative to turkey, ham for the pescatarians in the family. Uh, But this is besides salmon, which this particular listener gets tired of. Do you ever serve seafood at Thanksgiving? Oh, I love seafood. Um, Especially if I'm having a group setting, I like a whole fish. You know, there's some beautiful, I, I saw some beautiful fish on display at Whole Foods not that long ago. Um, even even just a side of halibut, if there's a group, get a larger fish and roast it whole, bring it to the table, head, tail, all of it, like gorgeous. Why halibut? Oh, halibut's in season right now. It's good cold water, cold water fish, crowd pleasing, mild white, easy to cook, hard to mess up, you know, great. We've not talked about cranberries yet. I feel like people have... Very strong feelings about cranberries in either direction. Where do you come down? Oh, I love cranberries. I do. I didn't always. I remember my family, you know, just poured them out of the can with the ridges on the side. Uh That's the cranberry I grew up with. But um, as an adult and a chef, I now eat delicious cranberry. And I understand now 
And so the can is good and nostalgic, but you can really soup it up. What do you use to sweeten your cranberry sauce? I like sugar and honey. Um, I like the I like the flavor of honey, but you know, you, there's a lot of honey. It can be a little too much, so maybe a little blend. Brown sugar is also really great. Anything else you add? Oh, lots of aromatics. You know, clove, bay, uh, orange is super classic. Yeah, lemon, great. I saw a recipe that I tried a while back with shallots mm, in delicious. cranberry, and it was a nice balance. Heck yeah, shallots are so good, so mild. Okay. Uh, I I thought that I would just drop an idea that I heard from a very good friend who's a very good cook. Okay. And he suggested this as a way to spice up your desserts. And that is to add rum chata to whipped cream. Are you aware of rum chata? I don't. What is rum chata? It is a horchata flavored rum. So it's got all those great Mexican spices that it's in the horchata drink. Okay. You add this rum to your whipped cream. (laughs) And it's whipped cream with a kick. I love that. I love putting, I, cooking with alcohol is great, especially in desserts. <laughs> but rum chata, I love horchata. And add rum to it. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so this was something idea. I just heard yesterday. I thought I would share it with I the world. I love it. Thank you. Uh, let's talk about desserts. Do you think pie is a must or do you look to some alternatives? You know, I'm a pumpkin pie. It's my favorite pie. Once a year. It's this Thursday. It has to be there. It's okay. my favorite. So you're going to make that? Um, I, I I would try yours, <laughs> but I do make a good one. And I, any secrets or tips on that front? I, no, I mean, just don't make it too sweet. Concentrate on the crust. The crust is the best part. And then, you know, the topping, the garnish. Now I'm a rum chata user, so. <laughs> I like how quickly you've converted. <laughs> uh, do you use the, the pumpkin pie in the can? Um, in a pinch, it's okay, but to roast a whole pumpkin is very satisfying and see it be made into a beautiful pie. Okay, so you've done that. I have. It's not that hard. Every, anyone could do it. How would you say your your younger years influenced you as a chef? Like, what's your what's your first cooking memory? Um, I remember cooking with my father a lot. We really liked, uh, you know, classic American cuisine, but we liked beef stroganoff and meatloaf and... Uh, roast beef and things like that. And I remember making and eating and loving all of those dishes so much. Are those things that you make still today? You know, I I see them in the things I make all the time. Um, I love taking those classic, you know, they're classics for a reason because they work. Uh You know, those that came before us, they figured it out. So why stray too far? Um, I see them in everything I cook in the classic flavor combinations and such. So yeah, they're always there. Did Top Chef make you a better chef? Does it have that effect on you? Yes, absolutely. I really, I I realized that I was much stronger than I thought I was. Okay. <laughs> you know, and especially under pressure, I have this uh, this crazy ability to function under large amounts of pressure. And, and you know, and then with all everyone that I met and all the dishes that I made there under pressure, like, you're forced to become creative and try new things. And it was very positive. Carrie Baird, nice to meet you. Thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. She's the chef and co-owner of Bardot in Denver. Tune into Colorado Public Radio's Facebook and Instagram pages uh, tonight for more of Carrie's answers to your Thanksgiving cooking questions. Everybody eats when they come to my house. I fix your favorite dishes. Hoping this good food fills ya. Work my hands to the bone in the kitchen alone. You better eat if it kills you. Pass me a pancake, Mandrake. Our resident poet says there's nothing quite like this time of year in the Colorado Rockies. So guess what? 
David Rothman wrote a poem about it. It's a short ode. Uh, that would probably be the right thing to call it. An ode being a, a, a lyrical, ecstatic song of praise for the Colorado mountains and for skiing in particular, especially in winter, the Colorado mountains in winter. And it really came as just a kind of a, just this very powerful lyrical moment when I was thinking about how much I, I love this place and uh, how much I love where I live, which is in Crested Butte, Colorado. So here's David Rothman reading his new ode. It's called Always Somewhere. Somewhere in the dark is always mountains, years in mountains, mountains silent, standing inscrutable, big, rocky, piercing, sheer, and hills wrinkled and rippling, calling clear across their time, symbolic, real, and branding reality as cities boast a downtown. Always somewhere in the air is snow of every kind, light, drifted, melting, deep especially. Its liquid energy released come spring, stored temporarily upon the mountains, as through time they keep faith with cold nights where the foxes bark and roam. Somewhere, Always is an everywhere where the mountains and the snow grow down in time until in winter's deep sleep time grows balanced and in quiet you can climb a mountain and the snow no one can own because in afternoon sunshine time's there. Always in this somewhere life was skiing, riding on and through each every storm, as if forever in a glorious seeming of time, down mountains where the quick snow streaming invited the world's body to perform. Could anything have ever been more freeing? So, when it's taken, with our words and seeing, let these words stand. Now that was time and being. David Rothman is CPR's resident poet. He also directs the graduate program in creative writing at Western Colorado University. And he's Poet Laureate of the Western Slope. We'll post Always Somewhere later today to CPR.org. And that's Colorado Matters for today from CPR News. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner in Centennial.